Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome back to another season of Talking with Traders with me, Garth McKenzie. This is the sixth season of the podcast, and we're into our third year since the podcast began in 2020. Once again, IG have come on board as sponsor and agreed to fund this podcast for another season. We really are privileged to have such a global leader in CFDs trading as our podcast sponsor. Over the coming weeks, I'll be interviewing various guests from around the globe to bring you their market insights. I'll be digging in to find out what makes them tick, how they see the markets in the year ahead, and what techniques they will use to succeed in the markets. Some of the guests will be returning guests from previous seasons, and some will be new guests that I've managed to convince to join me to give up their time and share their insights. As we enter 2023, there's as much uncertainty as ever around where the markets may be headed in the next 12 months. We've just come off a horrid year for investors in 2022, where a typical 60-40 portfolio delivered its worst annual return in several decades. But what of 2023? Will the US lead the world into a global recession, or will the central banks manage to achieve a soft landing for the global economy? Will inflation come under control as base effects kick in and supply bottlenecks open up? Will US earnings hold up in the face of a weak economy, or will they disappoint? Will we see continued weakness in the US dollar? I'll be asking these and many other questions to my guests in the coming weeks. The idea behind these podcasts is for you to get a variety of views from a broad spectrum of market professionals. None of this is intended to be seen as financial advice, but it is intended to get you thinking and to weigh up what possible paths the market may follow in the year ahead. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. That way you'll be notified of upcoming episodes as they get released. Once again, thanks to IG for sponsoring this podcast for a third consecutive year. Thanks for joining me, and please enjoy Season 6 of Talking With Traders. Welcome back to another episode of Talking With Traders, and this week it is a delight to be able to welcome a new guest to the podcast series. His name is Axel Rudolph. He is an analyst with IG Markets in London, and I must say for me personally, it's an honor to be able to speak to you, Axel, because you've been on the TV, on CNBC and Bloomberg's and what have you, lots over the years, and I remember being a, a younger broker in South Africa, watching the TV and watching you on the uh, on various financial channels. So uh, having the opportunity to speak to you today is a big honor. Thanks very much for joining me. Well, thank you very much, Garth. Uh, and thank you very much for having me on Traders Corner on your podcast. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, it's good. I'm really looking forward to chatting to you. Um, as I do with every new guest that we welcome onto the podcast, I always like to just get a little bit of a background as to who you are. So tell the listeners you know, a little bit of your background. I know you've got a very long CV, very experienced in the market. So you could probably tell us for, for a long time about your CV and your experience. So I'm going to ask you for the abbreviated version, a little bit of background as to what you've done in your career and what, what's led you to get to where you are now as an analyst at IG Markets. Yes, well, basically, I might be showing my age here, but I started uh, trading nearly 30 years ago uh, in uh, a French investment bank in Paris, Société Générale, and I, I was basically a, a junior FX and fixed income trader. And uh, 
started in September of 1992, which was the month when George Soros pushed the British pound out of the uh, exchange rate rate, sorry, exchange rate mechanism. Um, And um, I very quickly had to learn how to manage my risk in order to keep my job, basically, and uh, started looking at charts. And all through my career, to be honest, I've uh, very much focused on uh, technical analysis. I'm a very keen follower of technical analysis. And over the last 30 years, I've used it on all kinds of asset classes that are either traded or uh, that I sort of managed. I also worked uh, uh, for a time as a fund manager. And for the last 10 years, for example, I worked uh, in a team at uh, Germany's second largest bank, Commerzbank, as a technical analyst. So as a trader, analyst, and fund manager, I basically use technical analysis in conjunction with uh, the usual macroeconomic and um, fundamental analysis, but really focusing more on the technical side, to be honest. And Mm. I've been doing that for three decades now, basically, Mm. uh, all over the world. Yeah, well, I guess we're uh, kindred spirits then. I'm also very much technical analysis focused. Love the charts, love reading the trading action. Um, so we'll talk more about that during the podcast because I, I do want to get a little bit more uh, insight into the way you use technicals and how you set up your charting templates, etc. But we'll get to that later. What I want to speak to you about first up is uh, some topics that you spoke about in a in a webinar that you gave to IG clients recently. It was in early January or middle of January, and I watched that webinar with a great deal of interest. And you 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 sort of teed it up by saying that the year ahead, twenty twenty three, will be very much a case where the market is going to be focusing on three main things. They are inflation, growth, and then central bank policy. So to kick off the conversation, I want to just uh, touch on each of these topics because I, I, mean, I agree those are the, the probably the three most overwhelming focal points besides some of the tail risks and things in markets that we're watching at the moment. But let's just touch on them quickly. I mean, inflation I presume that you're of the view that inflation has peaked, at least in the shorter term anyway? I am. I am. Yes, definitely. The problem is, though, that it's not enough for inflation to peak. What we wanted to do is to continue to slide and to do so, hopefully, at a relatively steady or faster pace than what has been happening recently in the last few weeks, for example. I mean, Garth, you you probably saw the numbers today. We had the personal consumption expenditure out, which yeah. is actually the inflation measure that the Fed looks at more than consumer price inflation, CPI, yeah. that is. Yeah. And that came in stronger than expected. We had a core number out year on year at 4.7% uh, versus a forecast 4.3%, showing us that inflation is actually quite sticky. And that obviously worries uh, investors because uh, it increases the risk of the Fed not only raising rates further, but also to keep higher rates for longer than was anticipated only just a few weeks ago at the end of December, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems to be the the, the, the issue at right now, because I think by and large, the, the expectation, the consensus has been that we'll get another two rate hikes of 25 basis points each, and then the Fed will stop, and they might even begin to to uh, pivot later in the year. And I think, as you're saying, you know that the risk is, well, first up, are we going to get another two 25 basis point hikes, or are we going to get a 50 basis point thrown in there somewhere? Because I've seen some Fed officials starting to utter those words recently. So perhaps you know, 
the rates are going to go a little higher than what was anticipated. But then the big question, like you said, is do rates stay high for for longer? And I guess that's the that's the unknown because the further out we go, the more difficult it is to to know um you know what what federal but federal reserve policy is going to look like and i guess they don't know the fur- further out either and what 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 can we learn from from the 70s here and i think that's the period that a lot of people hark back to and look at it, inflation in the 70s and they see a similarity to what we have now where inflation spiked then it came down but then the central banks cut interest rates too quickly and inflation took off again and and actually ended up in a quite a significant inflation spiral. Surely Jerome Powell is smart enough to know that history and to therefore know that cutting rates too quickly could actually have very detrimental consequences. Yes, certainly. And that's why the financial markets are starting to worry now, because basically, as you said, Jerome Powell will make sure or try to make sure that inflation doesn't get out of hand like it did in the 1970s, because that had a very detrimental effect on the economy and not just the US economy, but the global economy back then. And uh, that's the last thing we really need at the moment. I mean, we are just celebrating today, not celebrating, but we are unfortunately in a position where we've had the first year of uh, Ukraine being invaded by Russia. So you also have risks with regards to to geopolitical events taking place at the moment. And um, with regards to the central bank policy, I mean, uh, they, I mean, the Fed is trying to bring rates down, uh, that is to say inflation down again to 2%. The question is uh, whether that's even possible. I know that some central, uh, some um, Major investment banks have recently said that we will continue to see disinflation in the coming month and that by the beginning of next year, we could actually reach that target again. But not everybody agrees. And as you say, Garth, I mean, if we do have numbers like the PC number we just had out today, which shows us that inflation is not coming off as quickly as forecast, and if we continue to see relatively strong data coming out of the US economy, as we have seen recently, I mean, look at the uh, jobs uh, data. We saw 519,000, I believe it was in January for the non-farm payrolls, much stronger than expected, uh, nearly triple the estimate we had. Then um, it is quite likely that the Fed will, uh, even if it sticks to its currently forecast, well, by the market's forecast, 5.5% um, pivot, it might not then lower rates before the beginning of 2024. And that mm. could have a negative impact on the US economy, of course. Sure. And that's the next point. I mean, I mentioned there were these three main focal points. The next one was growth. And and that, I guess, tees up this next topic quite nicely. Um, if rates do stay higher for longer, there's a lag effect. And I don't think we've even really begun to fully feel the, the lag effect of these aggressive rate hikes that the Fed put into the market last year. Um, is growth going to come under pressure? Are you in the camp that sees a recession in the US later this year or into 2024? I am in two minds about this. Uh, when I did my presentation in January, mm. I tried to be- present both cases, the, you the did, positive yeah. and, the, and the negative. Yeah. And uh, historically speaking, if you go back to the 1970s, because we were just talking about the inflationary spiral in the 1970s, um, when you have inverted yield curves, 
then what tends to happen is that uh, when the yield curve yield curve normalizes again. I mean, here, for example, when I talk about inverted yield curves, what I mean is, for example, the 10-year yield in the US and the two-year yield. Mm -hmm. And when you have an inverted yield curve, you have investors expecting a decline in the long-term interest rate. Mm -hmm. And when that reverts back to normal, what usually tends to happen is we get a recession after that. And as you say, there's a lag of about six to nine months. Mm. So this would be a negative scenario, and if you look at uh, the, um, the the what, what's also happened in the past with regards to the Fed pivots, um, I've got uh, I presented a chart in January going back to the 1970s again, and every time we hit a pivot, then within the next three to nine months we had equity markets coming off, and mm. when I say coming off, I mean the S and P dropped by. Uh, between 27% and 58% in that time period, all the way up to the, the current decade. So um, there is this underlying risk that once the pivot has been reached and once the uh, inverted yield curves normalize, that recessions tend to happen. So that would be uh, the scenario for, for the bears, really. And it yeah. is a possibility. And right now, having looked at the charts more than anything, to be honest, I have the impression that we may well be in a phase where we are short-term topping out again. And if we were to fall through the January lows, then I believe the negative scenario I was just talking about with regards to a recession in the US rearing its head uh, towards the end of this year or perhaps the beginning of next year is actually becoming more likely with equity markets than likely selling all the way off again towards the October lows. Yeah, that's certainly the way I'm seeing it as well. I mean, I'm in a big level that I've been watching on the S and P 500 is is four thousand one hundred, and whilst we were above that, I think it was feeling and like it might be bullish, but we back up below that level and and quite well below it actually today, and that agree I agree. I mean, it makes me think that maybe we've just had a big bear market rally over the last three months, and we could be on the cusp of another leg to the downside. Your your point that you made about when the Fed pivots and then the fact that that's usually when the markets come off. Um, I guess if we had to unpack a reason for that, you know, why does the Fed pivot? Why does the Fed cut rates? Well, it cuts rates because economic growth is under pressure, and if if growth is under pressure, well, then that's obviously negative for earnings, and negative earnings, negative stock market. Right? Is it as simple as that? Um, in a nutshell, probably. Um, yeah. But as you said, Garth, um, there are a lot of other factors which um, uh, also play into it, such as market sentiment, how confident people feel about the economy going forward. Because if they don't want to spend money because they're worried about having to save it just in case um, things will get worse, um, and also at, at the moment, I mean, because of the high input costs we have everywhere and the high inflation with regards to food prices, et cetera, affecting um, not just the lower income earners, but uh, the economy in general and governments. I mean, this is unprecedented if you think of it, stepping in uh, in Western Europe uh, to help the households and also small and medium sized businesses with regards to their energy bills. Um, that really shows you at what stage we are at at the moment, at the moment, and that people are really struggling with the inflation we're seeing at the moment. Mm. So, um, uh, yes, I mean, in a nutshell, you're probably right. 
Uh, but I also believe that uh, the uh, the human element should never be um, excluded in that sentiment. And, and markets, financial markets, equity markets are driven by sentiment to a large extent, mm. uh, will also be in, uh, affected by that. And if people have to worry more about their food bills, then they won't be spending any money on cars and things like that, uh, which yeah. are very expensive. So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Something that you presented in your webinar earlier in January, which I was really interested in, and, and it surprised me, was a diagram from a friend of yours, Klaus Weber. Um, and it basically, unfortunately, because this is a podcast, we can't show the visuals. But if I describe it, you looked at uh, growth in in earnings and movements in the stock market over the course of a year. And one would ordinarily think that Strong earnings equals a strong market. Weak earnings equals a weak market. I was very surprised on the diagram that you showed that it's like a scatter plot. There actually was very little uh, link between strong earnings and a strong market and weak earnings and a weak market. I mean, there were times, there were observations on that diagram where you had weak earnings and a strong performance for the S&P 500 in that year and vice versa. You had strong earnings with a negative return on the S&P 500 in some cases. So the, the distribution of those observations was very, very random, which I found quite surprising. Uh, but I guess that also then talks to your comment a moment ago about what one of the things being sentiment that drives markets. And it's not just historic earnings. It's also what's the market expecting going forward. So, I mean, I, I'm making a lot of statements here. I'm not really asking you a question. The question I suppose that I want to come out of this is that if we can't entirely rely on those sort of fundamentals, then it brings in the question of using technicals. And that was really what I wanted to get to you is your, your interest in technicals, which you highlighted at the beginning of this conversation and how you use technicals to to make trading decisions to make investing decisions you're a you're a fellow of the society of technical analysts in london you mentioned that before um funnily enough we get we interviewed a guest two weeks ago who was rajan dal who's also a, a member of the of the sta in london can you give us a little bit of background and I mean, why, why is it that you like technicals so much and would you place greater reliance on technicals in your trading decisions rather than fundamentals Absolutely. I mean, uh, especially nowadays, I, I would uh, only trade based on the technicals. I wouldn't even look at the fundamental picture because uh, at the end of the day, and, and this is what I find interesting in the uh, market analyst role that I've got now at IG, uh, is that I, um, amongst other people, explain why things are happening. But when we explain data, such as, for example, the PCE data today, this is backward-looking data. It's data that comes out every month, or in case of GDP, every three months. And there is a time lag associated with that data. And in the meantime, things can change. And this change you can spot on the chart straight away, because at the end of the day, you're just using one single variable that you're looking at, and that is the actual price. And the price right now is nothing else than demand and supply in this given or at this given point in time. Yeah. So therefore, um, if I just analyze the price and really understand what the price is doing, do we see more buyers or sellers in the market? Um, and also the fact that history, in my opinion, doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but um, human nature doesn't change. So in a way, it rhymes. 
then you can put the two together and get a better, clearer picture and also with clearer objective stop loss levels than you could do with a fundamental analysis approach or a pure fundamental analysis approach. Because with fundamental analysis, you have to wait for the data to confirm that you're wrong or right. And that might take a long time. In the meantime, if the markets uh, move very swiftly, you could be a long way away with regards to risk compared to the position you have on, for example, now. And whereas with charts, I know, for example, I believe at the moment that we are in the topping phase with regards to equity markets, not just in the US, but also in Europe and also in Asia, then I'm wrong if we make new highs. It's as simple as that. If we make a new high, this bull market we've seen since, uh, or bull market, I don't know, it might just be a bear market correction, but the up move we've seen since October of last year is likely to continue. However, if it doesn't, then the current reversal we're seeing has probably further to go to the downside. So basically what I'm saying is that instead of looking of lots of different variables, inflation, growth, um, uh, all kinds of other data, I just focus on one thing and that's the actual price. And mm. thereby, first of all, I get the price instantaneously. I don't have to wait for any lags or, or revisions in the data. And secondly, I can just focus on one single variable, which I prefer, because the odds of getting things right when looking at one variable compared to hundreds um, are probably get greater, in my opinion. So that's yes. why I look at technicals. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes so much sense. And and I like what you said there. I mean, a, a graph at the end of the day is a it's a graphical representation of that dynamic between buyers and sellers in the market at that given moment, and the price is that is the one and only truth at that given moment. So we're, we're we're on the same page there. But let's talk a little bit about how you use your technicals. I'd like to get a feel for the type of technical analysis you do. Because I think it's a school, it, it's it's a it's an approach to the market that has become more and more popular over the years. I mean, I, I know certainly even in my early days in the market, and I'm certainly not as experienced as you are, but when I've been in the market's 20 odd years and early on in my career even then technicals were sort of looked at a little bit strangely as being this sort of weird tea leaves type of in endeavor but it's become more and more mainstream what i want to understand is when you look at a chart i mean take us through the process how do you how do you analyze a chart do you start from a bigger picture and then zoom in what does a typical chart template look like for you well, that's exactly it, Garth. I, I try to get the furthest, uh, the longest data set I can I can get my hands on, and I would then look at uh, quarterly charts and then monthly charts, and then I would go into the the weekly and daily timeframes. And with regards to the actual trades I put on or the analysis I I do for for clients, I would then zoom into the uh, intraday charts, and that can be anything from four hours to hourly um, and then 15 minutes and even three minutes charts. So mm. I, I that those are my preferred ones, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, the main thing is what you want to do with technical analysis at the end of the day is to get the odds in your favor and to be able to ride a trend as long as there is one. Yeah. And markets, as, as most people, I think even people who just look at the markets from a fundamental point of view, um, agree on is that there are trends in in financial markets. I know the economic theory teaches us that you know there's the random walk down Wall Street and all all that of thing. But um, we have seen since the financial crisis at the 
very least, I think, that financial markets aren't rational all of the yeah. time. Yeah. And <laughs> therefore, uh, we do get trends and those trends you can you can ride and you can trade along either on the long side or on the short side. So for me, it's very important to look at the longer term picture first to see where I'm at. And um, I will then zoom into the shorter term picture because the reason I do this is also because if I were to, for example, want to go long on, um, let's say, for argument's sake, the, the S&P, uh, if, if I wanted to go along the S&P and, and wanted to do so at 5,000, a round number, if in the past, I mean, this is not the case, but if in the past uh, months and years, uh, every time it, it hit 5,000, it then came off again, then that might not be a good strategy. And I need to be aware of those previous highs and the previous lows, because quite often markets tend to then trade uh, or revert at these sort of levels again in the future. So it's very important to know about the bigger uh, timeframes. And that's what I also always say to IG's clients, if they want to trade, if they want to get the odds in their favor, what they should do, whatever time frame they trade at, they need to look at the next bigger time frame to see whether that aligns with their strategy. So for example, if you want to go short on an hourly chart, does the daily chart also point lower? Because if it does, the odds of you being right are greater than if it's not the case. Mm -hmm. It's like swimming in the ocean. I mean, if you swim with the tide, it's much easier to do than if you swim against the tide. And it's the same with financial markets. Yeah, that's right. It's putting the probabilities in your favor. We've we've spoken about price on on, on charts, and obviously that's the number one technical technical thing on any chart. But of course, you get all sorts of other interesting indicators. You can put your moving averages on, you can put on momentum indicators like RSIs and stochastics, there's volume, there's MACD. I mean, you can get quite complicated with this stuff if you want to. And I've certainly found over over the years in, in my experience, some of the best analysts that I follow actually keep it very, very simple and really don't have a lot of indicators on their charts. But I'd, I'd be interested to know, what does your standard chart template look like? What indicators do you have on typically? Well, um, Garth, as you said, I keep things extremely simple. I mean, I did probably what most people do at the beginning when I learned about technoanalysis and had lots of different lines and indicators on my charts. <laughs> it just became quite um, quite confusing. Yeah. Um, but um Yes, I try to keep things very simple. I mean, not just uh, for myself, but also for the read and readers of, of uh, the columns we write and things like that. So I only have um, usually a candlestick chart uh, on there because I believe that the candlestick gives us a better picture of what's going on than just mm-hmm. a normal bar chart because yeah. we can also see the body, you know, the difference between the open and the close on a given um, candle. So that could be a, a daily candle or hourly candle, etc. And um, what I then do is I do draw trend lines on my charts. And we can see on the S&P, for example, if you go back to the high we saw in January of 2022, yeah. that downtrend, if you drew it on your charts correctly, um, is where the S&P has held over the last three days. And interestingly enough, also, if you draw an uptrend from the October lows, uh, that's more or less where we bounced off uh, in the last few days. And and today, I think we might actually be slipping through that at the moment. Yeah, but, it looks um, like it, yeah. yeah. Definitely. And um, that is really critical. So you can use old trend lines if they get broken because of inverse polarity. In the future, they might then 
act as the opposite to what they were before. So what I'm saying is in an uptrend, if you leave an old uptrend, which was really important for several years on your charts, quite often when it gets retested, it acts as resistance. And in a downtrend, um, when that gets breached, it then acts as support, as is the, as was the case uh, yesterday and the day before for the S&P 500 is no longer the case at the moment. Yeah. So I, I do that. And what I then do, I only have um, two moving averages on my charts. And that is the 200 period. And I say period here because I use it for the day, the week, the hourlies, uh, even on the three-minute charts, I use my 200 period. Now, obviously, at the 200 period moving average, most people would know the 200-day moving average, which approximates a year's trading. And is also a round number. I mean, most people are aware that traders love, uh, or even investors love round numbers. I mean, yeah. it's easy to remember, you were just talking about the the S&P. Uh, most people talked about 4,000 or maybe 4,100, but um, mm-hmm. round numbers are important to mm-hmm. us as human beings. Mm-hmm. And uh, therefore, I would um, also use the 200-day or 200-period moving average and that in conjunction with the 55-day. Now, 55-day is a slight variation to the 50-day that a lot of people look at, like the 100-day as well, for example, in that uh, 55 is a Fibonacci number. That's why I use that one. Um, But that's just me. That's just personal preference. And then uh, at the bottom of my chart, I only have a relative strength index, the RSI. And I use a nine-period RSI simply because I want to get an earlier signal. I mean, back in the 1970s, when Wells Wilder invented a lot of these indicators, um, he basically chose a 14-day period for his indicators, which is why all this the software nowadays has yeah. these 14 days. It's the standard setting, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But I prefer the nine-day uh, simply because it, it gives me uh, slightly earlier signals, and um, I, I'm just used to it, really. But what is really important with both this the moving averages and the trend lines is that all of this is additional information to the actual price so for Mm -hmm. me the most important thing is first of all understand what's going on with regards to the price itself because that will give you far better information than any derivative of price such as the rsi for example yeah yeah something i find quite useful to do once a week actually is just to look at the price chart so literally a candlestick chart with nothing else on it. No moving averages, no RSIs or stochastics or anything else, just the price. And it's actually amazing with a, with a trained eye how much, uh, how helpful that is, I guess, without all the clutter of other noise from various other technical indicators. And then, of course, if you see something interesting, well, I suppose then you can start to add other indicators on to try and get confirmation. But like you said, price is the number one thing. Price is king. And all of these other things like RSIs and stochastics and whatever else is, they're all sort of secondary indicators which help to build the picture. But that's you can't trade just on those things alone. Price is king. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, Something else I just want to ask you about, because you're you're experienced in this game and you you obviously represent IG markets now. Um, Tell me about leverage and your thoughts on it and your the way you use it. You know, it can be it can be very dangerous in the wrong hands, but very useful in the right hands. And I've noticed over the years, more more experienced traders, I don't know, they seem to use less leverage. That's certainly the way I'm finding my life to evolve. Maybe it's just we get older and we're not so bold. But <laughs> give me your thoughts on leverage and whether we 
you know, we, how, how we should utilize it. Um, you should be, as you say, Garth, very careful with leverage because most people don't realize, first of all, what leverage can do to you if you're over leveraged. And a lot of investors, and that's probably why retail investors in general lose money, mm. are over leveraged. I mean, professional fund managers, for example, won't, uh, pro most won't go over 2%. Uh, risk per uh, share they own, for example, mm. um, quite often as far less, it's only half a percent or so. Yeah. Um, uh, simply because if um, something unexpected were to happen, like, for example, we had Rolls-Royce uh, earnings out this week, uh, yeah. much better than expected, and the share price uh, jumped 18%. Mm. And uh, if you had been short that share, and uh, let's say you had a uh, pretty big leverage on there, and it was 50% of your capital, well, you would have been wiped out by that yeah. trade. And people yeah. forget that these things happen. And also nowadays that we have algorithmic trading and all kinds of uh, high-frequency trading and, and, and uh, other quantitative um, systems trading uh, going on, the odds of getting these uh, black swan events or these extreme flash crashes or extreme movements and spikes in volatility are actually far greater than they were 30 or 40 years ago. Mm. And therefore, if you have a lot of leverage on, um, it can really ruin you. And uh, I always um, say, for example, to IG's clients that we meet uh, when they come to the uh, office in London for workshops and, and things like that, that even if you risk 10% of your trading capital, um, spread betting, for example, um, it can all go horribly wrong because, and, and quite a lot of them are surprised. I mean, 10% is not a lot, and that's fine, etc. But <laughs> if you do simple math, I mean, I always show them a graph I have done with uh, my trading coach, and we basically did a simulation of 20,000 trades and uh, looked at simple strategies from a mathematical point of view. So we would say we have 100 trades, and in that sample of 100 trades, let's say we are right 50% of the time. So it's like a coin toss, heads or tails, whether you're wrong or right. Of course, what isn't included in here is that you have the actual spreads when you're spread betting, mm -hmm. or you have the slippage when um, you know, trade financial markets uh, on, on, on the different exchanges, etc. So you have to always be aware that no matter what you're doing, the, you, the markets are skewed against you. That's the first thing. But even if it was 50% probability that you are right or wrong, on 100 trades, there's 100% certainty that you will get five losing trades in a row. It yeah. just happens. Mm -hmm. And in our sample of 20,000 simulation, the number was actually higher. It was between six and seven. Um, so if you risk... 10% per trade and you're just unlucky, but it is likely, well, it's not likely, it's 100% certain to happen over a large sample, um, is that you would lose half of your capital. And if you lose half of your capital, you need to make 100% just to get back to break even. Mm -hmm. And these simple mathematical uh, calculations, everybody should know about uh, when they are uh, trading uh, in a leveraged uh, environment, because you need to be more careful. You really do. Yeah, yeah, that that's good answer, and uh, as I expected from you, Axel, you, you mentioned in the webinar in January. There's ten common mistakes that traders typically make, and I want to quickly run through each of them. Um, the first one we've sort of talked about already is over leveraging, so we don't don't need to revisit that. The second one you mentioned is not having an edge. So talk to us about that. What do you define as having an edge? 
Well, basically, do you have a strategy which, on average, makes you more money than it loses? And um, most people think they do, uh, but they don't because they've never backtested it. Or even if you don't backtest your strategy, what you should at least uh, see is that uh, what well, we were just talking about, a sample of 100 trades, for example. Have you got 100 trades which can show you that your strategy is actually working? Do you make more money than you lose? Um, or is it just uh, a guess? And even if you have a uh, an edge, um, you need to apply it correctly. So I could mm -hmm. give somebody the best trading strategy I have, and they could still not make uh, the same amount that I do and actually lose money mm -hmm. um, for all kinds of different reasons. But an edge is basically just a strategy which is profitable over time. Um, it gives you positive expectancy. Uh, it's what it's called as well. So you could, for example, only be right 30% of the time. But if on average, your strategy makes, let's say, four times more than you lose on average, you would still be um, making money over time. Yeah. Um, but you know, even the best traders in the world, if they have uh, no edge, then you can't over time win money. And I know sometimes people will say, well, no, I've made millions doing this and this and that, um, mostly because they were over leveraged. Yeah. But if you take a large enough sample of people in the world, let's say 100 million people trading, well, some of them are bound to be just lucky yeah. for a while. <laughs> until they get blown out uh, of their accounts. But yeah. um, yes, so um, an edge is, does your strategy actually work, at least on paper? Yeah, okay, fair enough. Second one, or not the second, actually the third point you said was not using a stop loss. That's one of the big sins of trading, isn't it? It, it certainly is. And I was you know, talking to you just now about uh, the, uh, the increased risk of the last, 20, 30, 40 years of, of having extreme events mm. um, and flash crashes. And if you don't have a stop loss in place, then these sort of events could very rapidly wipe you out and there's nothing you can do about it. Mm. And I know of quite a few very wealthy clients, for example, who have um, deep enough pockets to just ride out positions and, and not worry about it. But even to them, I would say that there is always the unknown one event that mm. could wipe out your your trade. And and a famous, um, I'm not going to mention his name now, but a famous um, hedge fund manager I've, I've been lucky enough to meet once, he, he told yeah. me every trade I put on has got my name on. It's like a bullet. It's basically mm. every bullet's got my name on it. Yeah. And every trade is a bullet that could yeah. misfire. Yeah. So he always thinks of the risk first and then is potential profit. Mm. So that's why you should have a stop loss in place, even if it is a huge, huge, long, long, long way away from where you are at the moment, have one there just in case. Yeah. Oh. Doubling down and averaging down, that's also a fast way to the poor house, isn't it? It certainly is. Um, because basically what you're trying to do is you, you try to regain the losses you've made. And then you quite often, because you are stressed and in a not in a good mental state, et cetera, will have less discipline. And if you do then make more mistakes, you actually make bigger losses on top of the losses you've already made. Yeah. And this stems back to, well, human behavior, we, we are, uh, loss averse and um we will <laughs> uh, 
I know everybody probably has done this in the past or might still be doing it. For example, yeah. you have a stop loss in place and then the market gets close to a stop and then you move your stop away because you think, <laughs> no, 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 it's going to be fine. And yeah. uh, especially if it worked in the past, it's going to be fine again going forward. But if you do that uh, and your stop gets hit, then your initial risk has become much greater than it was yeah. in theory before having to screw up the whole um, strategy you have. So um, doubling up is actually making things worse in my yeah. opinion and you should yeah. never do that no exactly i always have a a, a a metaphor i think um if you've got a hole in your boat you don't drill another hole to let the water out exactly right you yes. plug the first hole <laughs> yeah. and i guess doubling down and averaging down is 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 equivalent to drilling another hole in your boat yeah, no, it definitely is. And, and don't forget, I mean, some companies, for example, go bust. I mean, Enron, I, I remember back in the day, and, and uh, oh, it's even cheaper now. Now I'll buy more now, etc. <laughs> Look at Coinbase recently. Yes, yes. we had a great rally yeah. in the last few weeks, but what did we see before that? I mean, yeah. you yeah. needed to make, if you held on to this trade and added to that position, you probably need to make 900% to make back the sort of up to 90% loss you had yeah. at one stage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, keeping losses small is so important in this game. Next point was not having a trading plan. Yes, again, I mean, the problem is nowadays, especially with uh, the uh, possibility of trading on your phone, it being constantly in your hand and you being, um, how shall I put it, uh, <laughs> <laughs> tempted, let's say, to put a trade on very quickly because you see something on a chart on your phone. Um, that's just your intuition trading. It's mm -hmm. not you following a devised strategic plan which you've put in place before you even started trading. And by that, I mean a trading logbook. I mean a, a spreadsheet, for example, uh, where you put in the reason why you put on a trade, uh, when you do so, what time, uh, the chart that goes with it, where your stop loss is, where your potential target is, and why, etc., etc., etc. If you don't have a plan in business, then you're going to go nowhere. And trading has to be treated like managing your own company, like having your own business. You need to look at all the risks. You need to make sure that um, you've got uh, contingency plans in place. You need to have a strategy. Uh, you need to uh, plan ahead. You need to do all of these things. And the same with trading. So if you don't have a trading plan, you can't go back in time and say, okay, let's just look at the last three months and see why am I currently in a phase where I'm losing money. Mm -hmm. And if you have several hundred trades that, you, for example, you did over the last three months or three years or 30 years, um, you could then say, oh, actually, by analyzing my data, I noticed that only these three trades where I moved, for example, my stop away, and I lost four times more than I thought I would, they were actually the ones that contributed to the biggest part of my losses. Mm. So it it makes you realize where your errors are being made, etc. And if you don't have a trading plan, you don't know where you are, and you don't know where you're going to. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And then there's a long list, so we won't touch on all of these 10 things, but you we also mentioned no money management, um, which I guess uh, it, it kind of leads back to some of the other things that we've spoken about, um, and, and no risk management is another one. Not knowing what your risk is, not knowing how much you can lose on a trade, leaving that as an open-ended number, that's also a cardinal sin, isn't it? It, it definitely is, because... Um... 
going back to my example of being right half of the time if you traded a strategy which was you know 50% uh, probability of being right uh, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that if on average you uh, lose more than you you win on your winners then by definition you're going to lose and mm. um, it's uh, unfortunate but a lot of retail traders don't think about the risk before they start to trade mm. Um, they think about the potential profit and what yeah. they could do with that money and all the rest of it. Whereas yeah. the professional trader will always go in uh, to a position and say, okay, what is my uh, risk here? And if you work for an investment bank, for example, you know straight away that if you uh, blow your limits, you're out of a job. Yes. Um, so the risk is very clearly defined. And since you don't want that to happen, you make sure you get nowhere near that maximum risk that you can mm. actually use up. Mm. And uh, retail traders don't have that necessarily because um, some people just blow up their account and then they try to fund it again um, in the future. But if you don't manage your actual, the percentage risk per trade you put on, as we mentioned earlier on, Garth, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, maybe two or three percent maximum of your overall total um, account size, mm -hmm. and you start trading 20, 30 percent of your account on each trade, then there is a mathematical certainty that over time, eventually, you, you'll go bust. Yeah. And um, that's why risk management is so important. And that's why when you start trading, you should always say, okay, where's my stop loss? Let's say it's, um, I don't know, 100 pips away. Well, if it's 100 pips away, I will put my stop in straight away. Now I go, let's say, long if, if uh, in this example. And um, I then try to make, on average, let's say, twice as much as I'm initially risking. And if you consistently do that over time, even if you're less than 50% of the time right, you will make money. Yeah. But if you don't have any of this in place, then there is no way you can make money unless you're lucky. But that yeah. won't last forever. No, no, luck doesn't last forever. Quite right. Axel, we, we're heading towards the, the end of our allotted time. I've got one more question I'd like to ask you. Um, what What is it, do you think, that makes successful traders successful that differentiates them from the unsuccessful ones? And I know this is a difficult question to answer because there's various different things. But I mean, if you had to pull out one particular thing, what do the successful traders do differently? I'll give you three, Garth. Okay, okay <laughs> good. The edge. I mean, you need yeah. to have an edge. If you don't have an edge, then you can't beat the markets. It's as simple yeah. as that. Yeah. Secondly, you need to have discipline because if you're not disciplined enough to trade the strategy as you've, um, you know, uh, developed it, and if you don't follow your rules and if you don't uh, stick to your trading plan and stick to your stop loss levels, for example, then over time you won't be able to make money either. So discipline is the second one. And the third one is resilience, because no matter how good you are, it is never a straight upward curve with regards to your no. uh, P&L. Um, there are peaks and troughs, and uh, you need to be able to trust yourself, to trust your system, and to also just... Um, survive the the um, drawdowns and and be able to continue not just from a monetary point of view but also with regards to your own mental well-being and all the rest of it so you need to be quite resilient if you want yeah. to be a trader it's not an easy thing to do yeah they say it's a, a hard way to make an easy living it certainly is <laughs> it certainly is indeed yeah 
All right, Axel. Well, I'm going to wrap it up there. It's been wonderful speaking to you. It's been a privilege, as I said at the beginning. So thank you very much for giving me 45 minutes of your time today. Uh, I think the listeners are going to enjoy this podcast. So thank you very much. And uh, I hope we speak again at some stage in the future. I'm sure we will, Gareth. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you, Axel. Bye. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking With Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to this series by clicking on the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd also appreciate if you'd leave a review on the app too. Till next time.